Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. In today's show, we've got a great conversation with author Glenn Voles, who wrote a book about the history of search and rescue in Oregon. He details the wild early days of searching for lost pioneers and some of the state's most high-profile tragedies along with how search and rescue evolved from a handful of hardy volunteers into the professional units we know today. Before we get rolling, I want to highlight the sponsors of this podcast that make it possible for us to hire and pay our outdoor journalism interns every spring, summer, and fall. Our first sponsor is the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest, Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing a stewardship project and another headed out on a Tillamook Coast adventure. We'll have more details on this a little bit later in the show. Finally, we're brought to you by the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department that reminds visitors to leave no trace and buy local firewood when camping at state parks to limit the spread of invasive insects. Okay, up next, we're diving into the history of search and rescue in Oregon. It's a story of wilderness ingenuity, bravery, and even Oregon's biggest political crisis. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today we are thrilled to welcome in author Glenn Voles, who has written a fascinating book on the history of search and rescue in Oregon. The book is titled Oregon Search and Rescue, Answering the Call. It's a book that I've really enjoyed reading. So, Glenn, thanks for this book and thanks for being on today. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's really great to be here. Well, now we're going to jump into the book in just a second, but a quick Google search reveals that you have a remarkable background. You worked in intelligence overseas, even at the White House. Uh, do, you, do you mind giving us just a little bit of your background on that and then how you ended up in Oregon? Yeah, sure. I, I served 29 years in the Army and spent over a decade of that time living and working overseas. I did several assignments in Washington, D.C. as well, uh, working at the Pentagon and also in the White House Situation Room. I uh, had a great career, enjoyed my, my time in the military, but um, after many years of moving around, it was time to settle down and be closer to family. And uh, we have family in Oregon and Nevada and California, so this was a logical place for us to be after I left the Army. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'm sure I could spend another 30 minutes on that alone, but you know, I want to I want to focus on the book here. So let's start off with a straightforward one. You know, what inspired you to write this history of search and rescue, and specifically in Oregon? Yeah, so a few things drew me to the topic. I've always been interested in history, and I spent a few years of my military career teaching history at West Point. And now I spend a lot of time in the outdoors, and I serve as a volunteer member of Deschutes County Search and Rescue. And when I became a SAR volunteer, I was interested in learning more about the history of Oregon Search and Rescue. 
but I actually discovered that there wasn't a book on the topic. So I started doing the research and eventually that led to this book. Well, the thing I've really enjoyed about it, other than it just being interesting and often more amusing than I expected about, you know, some of the quirks of rescue over the years, is that you learn a lot about the state, like groups like the Mazamas, Obsidians, Skyliners, like names I still know and the groups that are still around today figure prominently in this history. And then you get to know figures whose names people probably recognize, like Oliver Yoakum of Mount Hood fame. I'm wondering for you, what was the most surprising things you came across in your research or what, what stuck out to you the most? Yeah, so several things surprised me as I got into the research. And I think what's most remarkable about the story is how, how far back in history Oregon Volunteer Search and Rescue goes. Mm-hmm. It's no exaggeration to say that the tradition really began during the territorial days. And of course, it all looked a lot different back then, but the essence of it was the same. It was about neighbors helping neighbors when some type of calamity occurred in the backcountry. And the history of Oregon Search and Rescue is as old as the state itself. And um, another thing that surprised me was the degree to which Oregon led the nation in the development of search and rescue capabilities. Outdoor, as you mentioned, outdoor clubs like the Mazamas were already performing informal search and rescue activities by the turn of the century, particularly around Mount Hood. And then by the 1920s, they were joined by other clubs like the Skyliners of Bend and the Obsidians of Eugene. Uh, now, of course, these were recreational clubs who were doing SAR activities on the side. Uh, but Oregon was also home to the oldest mountain rescue organization in the United States, the Hood River Cragrats. And when they formed in the late 1920s, uh, it was the first Oregon club specifically dedicated to search and rescue. And, and it's important to realize that this is something that's kind of unique to Oregon. Uh, by the early 1930s, Oregon already had a robust volunteer search and rescue capability that was probably unmatched anywhere else in the United States. Oh, that's cool. Was that just a product of the unique nature of Mount Hood and the Gorge? And I mean, that was an early recreational hotspot. I mean, was it just the, the necessity that seemed to, to spark it in Oregon quicker than other places? I think so. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, Mount Hood was one of the more popular recreational areas in the entire national forest system uh, by the 1920s. So there was um, probably more recreation going on there than almost anywhere else in the United States. So it just became a necessity pretty early on because Oregonians really started actively recreating on public lands in the early 20th century. Well, one thing I wanted to touch on before we we kind of got into the eras, because I really like the, the eras that you broke down there. Uh, a common theme in this book, and one that I recognize as a reporter that, that works on this stuff, is that search and rescue often gets the most attention in the wake of, of tragedies. You know, the Kim tragedy in the early 2000s, probably being the most high profile in recent years. But you mentioned a lot of them in your book, and even some I definitely hadn't heard of. So how do you look at this dynamic? I mean, as somebody who works in search and rescue, I think most missions end well, Um, But the disasters get the attention. But at the same time, the disasters can spark change and maybe needed change. So I'm just curious about how you look at that, because throughout your book, there's kind of like disaster followed by action. Um, I don't know. So what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree 100 percent. You're absolutely right. Uh, This book contains far more stories about failure than success. And uh, but there's a reason for that. Unfortunately, that maybe gives us a wrong impression about Oregon's SAR history, because as you know, the vast majority of SAR missions end successfully, but it's the happy endings are not generally the events that move history forward. Far more often, it's the negative outcome that becomes the catalyst for change. And a big focus of this book is the process of institutional change. 
I spent a lot of time discussing how SAR evolved and became professionalized over time. And some of the most important steps forward came in the aftermath of failure and tragedy. So it was these setbacks that pushed individuals and volunteer organizations to find better ways of doing things. Well, now, you, I've mentioned the eras and you, you break it up. So here are the eras that you kind of spotlighted here. We've got the pre-1920s mountain men, followed by the golden age of volunteer search and rescue post-World War II, the rise of outdoor recreation and government involvement. So those are, you know, some of the, the main checkpoints along the way. But what made your book fun and what kind of kept me propelling me forward was it's peppered with these uh, these SAR missions that kind of illustrate whatever area you're talking about, whether it was, you know, the rescue of a lost pioneer party or a missing hiker in a more modern age. So I just I'm curious, like overall, did you have a favorite historical search and rescue mission that from the many you researched, like what were your favorites? Yeah, so I researched so many incidents. It's kind of hard to pick out just one, but I think I had the most fun learning about the uh, legendary mountain man, uh, Lige Coleman, because uh, he was basically a one-man search and rescue unit during his years working as a climbing guide around Mount Hood. Uh, Coleman first summited Mount Hood in 1897 at the age of 16, and he was guided by the famous Oliver Yoakum. And over several summers, Yoakum trained Coleman in climbing, and they eventually went into business together as guides and uh, running a hotel at government camp. Uh, Coleman would go on to build the fire lookout on the summit of Mount Hood and served as the first lookout there in the summer of 1916. And during his career, uh, Coleman summited Mount Hood uh, 580 times, actually over 580 times. And a number of these ascents were as part uh, were as part of rescue missions. Uh, during his several seasons manning the fire lookout, Coleman would routinely go out to help lost or injured climbers, but he also went on searches for missing persons. He once rescued a family caught in a blizzard while traveling from Sandy to Clackamas Lake through nine feet of snow. He's just this fascinating character because he wasn't part of any organized search and rescue group. He just did a lot of these things on his own. And he was this incredibly skilled climber with superhuman endurance and he always seemed to be in the right place at the right time to help someone in need. But by all accounts, he was really modest and unassuming and kind of quirky. So he was just a really fun guy to learn about. All right. Well, let's jump into the various eras. And we have to start off with what might have been my, my favorite era. And that was pre-1920s Mountain Men, Good Samaritans, and Lifesavers. Um, this is the dawn uh, of SAR. And so for you, you know, what defined this period? What are we talking about when we talk about this era? Yeah, so I think this era is defined by individual initiative, most of all. Uh, so at the time, there's nothing called search and rescue. In fact, that terminology comes much later at the tail end of World War II. Uh, in the pre-1920s era, it was really just a time when individuals and community members responded when someone needed help in the wilderness. There were no SAR organizations. Uh, there was no formal training. There was no special equipment. But uh, the, the one exception to this generalization is the U.S. Life Saving Service on the coast. And that entity was the precursor to the Coast Guard. And they began as a volunteer service on the Oregon coast in the 1870s, protecting mariners along the coast. Uh, but by the 19th century, they had become fully professionalized and were operating in several locations stretching from Point Adams down to Port Orford. Yeah, that I, that was, I was going to ask you about that group specifically because they, you know, they formed in the late 1800s, you know, rescuing sailors, other people on the coast where, you know, there was more commerce and probably a need for them. They used some pretty fun methods for rescuing people. Can you describe some of the their methods for getting out there to, to rescue people? I, I remember a pulley system, a breaches buoy that they used. Uh, tell me more about uh, the life-saving service. 
Oh yeah, they. Uh, it was it, it was interesting. So it began on the East Coast as a series of shore-based stations with volunteer crews in the 1840s on the East Coast, and then by the mid 19th century, there was this steady increase in shipping traffic along the Oregon coast, and that led to a number of maritime accidents, particularly along that dangerous stretch between Tillamook Bay and the Columbia River Bar. So the Oregon legislature lobbied the federal government to have life-saving stations established along the Oregon coast, and the first station opened at Cape Argo near Coos Bay in 1878. And at first it was staffed by a volunteer crew. It had a paid keeper who was in charge of these guys. Um, these guys were known as surfmen and they were generally young men with really high levels of physical fitness. Uh, they were typically hired locally and served in one location for many years uh, to ensure that they were familiar with the unique hazards of the area. And then when ships got into trouble close to shore, the surfmen would mount rescues using shore-based rescue apparatus. And then when the ships got into trouble uh, farther out, the surfmen would row small rescue boats out to reach the stranded crews. And the, the work was incredibly dangerous. And the service's unofficial motto was, uh, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's pretty <laughs> dramatic. But uh, you, you mentioned the breaches buoy. And, and I have some actually great pictures of the breaches buoy and the other apparatus in the book. But uh, if you sort of can imagine it, it looked like a pair of oversized fishing waders attached to a zip line. And the surfmen along the sh this was for shore-based rescue, the surfmen along the shore would shoot a messenger line out to the distressed ship using something called a Lyle gun. And it was basically a small cannon that shot a projectile that could shoot out around 600 yards offshore. And the crew on the distressed ship would capture the messenger line, draw over a main line, and then tie that into the ship's rigging. And the surfmen on shore would then use the main line to send over the breaches buoy and then move the stranded sailors back to shore one by one. Uh, but what's remarkable about all, especially these um, techniques that the surfmen were using, is they're not that different really from some of the methods used by uh, today's uh, swiftwater rescue teams. So it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting, a bit of history there. Yeah, and the, but I think it was the image, the, the picture that you're talking about of the breeches buoy that just, it just made me laugh because it does, it looks like you're, oh, I don't know, like you become a buoy almost. Yeah, right? it's crazy. Yeah, but it worked. It worked. It, um, I mean, not always, obviously, but uh, yeah, it was uh, remarkably effective when when the ship's crews could receive that line and tie it into the rigging. Yeah, so it really required active cooperation from the people on the sailors on the distressed ship as well. So yeah, it wasn't just the rescuers that needed to make that apparatus work. Now, you actually started out, and I mean, people, when people think of Oregon, they often think of the Oregon Trail, pioneers coming across the mountains. And you started off the book talking about one of Oregon's first rescuers named Moses Black Harris. Uh, so who was he and how did he kind of define the, the mountain era of this time period? Yeah, so Moses Harris was this fascinating guy, and I, I think he rightly earned the title as Oregon's first volunteer rescuer. So Harris was a fur trapper and a scout who began guiding into Oregon country in the 1830s. And not a lot is known about his early life, but Harris was of mixed race ancestry. He was possibly the son of an enslaved mother and a white father. He was famous for his powerful physique and his ability to navigate through the mountains during the winter. Uh, one account from the period describes him in these really dramatic terms as being fearless as an eagle and strong as an elk. Um, so in the mid-1840s, Harris settled in Yamhill County, and he subsequently led two of the Oregon Trail's most famous rescues. And the first incident came in 1845 when he led a small party of indigenous Oregonians from the Waskow Band to help rescue around 1,000 settlers from uh, Stephen Meek's party who got into trouble on an Oregon Trail shortcut through the Harney Basin. And they became trapped on the banks of the Deschutes River near present-day Malpin, and they were running low on food and water. And Stephen Meek, he races ahead to the Dalles looking for someone to help rescue a stranded party, and he happens upon Moses Harris. And they actually knew each 
each other. And he was passing through the Dalles at the time, and he agreed to lead the rescue party. And so he arrives on the scene with food and provisions, and he begins building, building this pulley system using wagon beds to ferry the settlers across. And one observer uh, described the rescue apparatus that Harris divide as novel in the extreme. And although several dozen settlers died along the journey, Harris's actions no doubt saved uh, many lives that year. And then the following year, he would lead another rescue party, helping several hundred uh, settlers who were caught in the Kalapuya Mountains during an early season storm in November of 1846. And now to put this storm in perspective, this was part of the same historic weather system that trapped the Donner Party as they were leaving the Truckee Meadows and attempting to cross the Sierra Nevada that same month. So it was just this enormous storm that hit uh, the West Coast, uh, atmospheric river probably, um, you know, similar to some of the systems we've been having recently. So Harris helped helps rescue the stranded settlers, but his reputation was really tarnished by his role because he had been promoting the unproven route as a partner with the Applegate brothers. And so Harris left Oregon the following year under a dark cloud. And we don't exactly know the reasons for his departure, but as a person of mixed race ancestry, Harris uh, risked physical punishment under the territory's black exclusion law at the time. And so he uh, went to Missouri and died two years later of cholera. It was a kind of a sad and shameful ending for Oregon's first volunteer rescuer. Okay, we're going to take a first break here to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Glenn will talk about the golden age of search and rescue and an incident in which a human was transformed into a toboggan to help save a woman on Mount Hood. So that's when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air, and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. Well, I mean, a lot of... uh you know, the personalities like Harris and others jump off the page when, when you're reading through it. Um, and you come across famous names. And one of them was uh, Oliver Yoakum, whose name is now attached to, you know, Yoakum Ridge on Mount Hood. And he shows up in a lot of other places. There's also the Mazamas, who are very much still around now. So what can you tell us about Yoakum and the Mazamas and their role in these these early rescues? You touched on a little bit earlier, but but kind of dig into to how Yoakum and the Mazamas were that kind of early mountain rescue. Yeah, so people really forget that Oregonians have been recreating in the mountains and rivers and beaches for well over 100 years. Uh, by the early 20th century, when car ownership starts to become more common, Oregonians began visiting the national forests for hiking and camping and hunting and other activities. So it was really during this time that outdoor recreation became a big part of the state's identity. Uh, and then naturally, with the rising popularity of outdoor recreation came an increasing number of accidents and injuries occurring in the wilderness. Uh, at the time, most recreation was happening on public lands. Uh, however, the Forest Service didn't have a search and rescue capability. For this, they relied almost entirely on volunteer groups. And the Mazamas were one of these early groups that performed SAR activities in the National Forest when called upon. 
uh, because Mazama members uh, spent a lot of time hiking and climbing at popular recreation area in the Cascades, it was almost inevitable that there would be a Mazama around when someone needed rescuing. So Mazama members like Oliver Yoakum performed dozens of missions during the early 20th century. And by the late 1920s, they would be joined by some other famous Oregon outdoor clubs like the Skyliners and the Obsidians and the Yeast Climbers, who also performed search and rescue when called upon. However, it's really important to note that these were recreational clubs, uh, but they happened to do, they didn't have any formal SAR assignments or organizations. Uh, at the time, the Hood River Cragrats were the only organized group in the state dedicated to search and rescue. So the rest of the groups like the Skyliners and the Mazamas and the Obsidians were kind of doing this as a sideline to their recreational activities. Well, one of my favorite uh, rescue stories that you included uh, included Yoakum and, you know, a group using a human toboggan to get a woman down the mountain. Do you mind telling that story really briefly? Yeah, so that's a crazy story. Uh, supposedly, Yoakum was leading this climbing group on Mount Hood when they came upon uh, some Mazamas assisting an unconscious female climber. And I think this happened in 1906, I think it was. And the Mazamas didn't have any rescue equipment on hand. And so they wrapped one of their members in an overcoat and used him as a human toboggan to lower the woman around a mile down to the edge of the snowfield where she was transferred to a horse and then taken to a government camp for medical care. So it's kind of a, it's a funny anecdote, but I'm always a little skeptical about some of these old rescue stories. <laughs> Uh, but in any case, the unorthodox rescue method, it, it speaks to the times uh, yeah. because during that era, search and rescue was still very haphazard. There was no dedicated organizations, no special training or equipment. So when rescuers went out on a mission, they really had to rely on their ingenuity and creativity to get the job done. So it kind of speaks to the era more than anything else. Gotcha. Well, you know, you, you mentioned kind of a new era as we get into the 20s and 30s. Oregon's getting a little bit more established as a state. We're having the outdoor recreation boom that you've talked about in the Columbia Gorge and Mount Hood. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, it always I always think of the Gorge Scenic Highway when I think about this this time period and the Timberline Lodge. And so that's that's those are those are new at this point. And, you know, you can go to Multnomah Falls and your Model T and stuff like that. Uh, you call this chapter uh, the golden age of volunteer search and rescue. So what defines this area and why did you call it kind of the golden age? Yeah, uh, well, you, you you're exactly right. It's the, the the Columbia River Gorge and the Mount Hood Loop Road. That is what opens up the Cascades and especially the area around Mount Hood to recreation. Uh, so that's why we see that boom in recreation and subsequently the need for search and rescue. So the 1920s and 30s were really a unique era for Oregon search and rescue. At the time, there was very little government involvement. A small number of volunteer groups were conducting almost all the SAR activities and the ones I've already named, the Cragrats, Mazamas, Skyliners, Obsidians, and the Y.E.S. Climbers, along with uh, some of the state's early volunteer ski patrols as well. Uh, these groups operated pretty autonomously, but in cooperation with local law enforcement and the Forest Service. But they didn't receive any government funding, no money. Um, the, they occasionally would do fundraising efforts to help offset the costs of big operations. But the groups were largely self-organized and they managed their own training. Uh, they paid for their own equipment. And it's important to remember that this is happening during the Great Depression when many Oregon Oregonians are just struggling to get by. And so they're doing this in a very challenging environment as well. But when someone needed help in the wilderness, these groups answered the call and they went out to help their fellow Oregonians. So I think it really embodied the true spirit of volunteerism. And it was something that was unique to Oregon. I'm not aware of other states that had such a wealth of volunteer groups performing these activities during the 1930s. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's and it, it's again, it's significant that these groups are still around and you know still playing a big role in Oregon's outdoors. Uh, you describe a major search on Mount Jefferson in uh, 1934. Uh, can you describe that mission a little bit and why it ended up being so significant? Yeah, so that was um, that's a fascinating mission, and it was unique in several respects. It involved a young man named Don Burkhart, who was a member of the Mazamas, and he was actually the first president of the elite climbing group known, known as the Weiss Climbers. And Don was this really talented climber, and he was also an exceptional photographer who learned his craft along two other young members of the Weiss Climbers who would go on to become famous Oregon photographers, Al Monner and Ray Atkinson. So they were all just these young men together, just starting their careers, just starting their photography uh, so on Labor Day weekend, 1933, uh, Don Burkhart and two other climbers set out to explore a new route up Mount Jefferson's east face. Uh, but on Tuesday morning, the three men didn't show up back for work at, in, on Port, in Portland. And so that began a massive week-long search effort involving nearly all of Oregon's search and rescue entities of the day. Uh, the first rescuers arrived at Jefferson Park on Wednesday morning, and they found the ground covered with several inches of fresh snow. A group of Wais climbers uh, established a base camp at Olali Lake next to the ranger station because it had a phone line that was connected to Portland. And at the same time, a group of Mazamas began the initial ground search. Uh, as the mission continued, other teams joined the search effort. A team of crag rats began searching up from Jefferson Park. We had the obsidians who were assigned to the southwest slopes above Pamelia Lake. Meanwhile, the skyliners were called in and they started up from the Metolius Valley to cover the southeast side of the mountain around Waldo Glacier. But as you well know, unlike rescues on Mount Hood, the area around Mount Jefferson, far more remote, limited infrastructure, and really no communications at that time. So these search parties had to sustain themselves for days without support. Uh, they used runners for communications between the ground teams and the base camp. Uh, as the operation continued, it received a lot of coverage in the newspapers and generated some donations and additional volunteers. Uh, there was a nearby CCC camp at Brightonbush, and they set up a field kitchen to help feed the hungry searchers. On Tuesday, Improving weather conditions allowed a team to reach the summit, and they discovered that Burkhart's group hadn't signed into the summit register, suggesting that they never reached the top. And then on Friday, a team of Hawaii's climbers spotted a piece of yellow fabric near the summit pinnacle, and that led them to three bodies buried in the snow that were still roped together. And rescuers found them uh, amid a, a field of ice blocks, so it led them to suspect that Burkhart and his companions had been caught in an avalanche on the east face. So a runner was sent to Brightonbush Lake to inform authorities that the search had turned into a recovery operation. Um, the Weiss climbers were formed by, were joined by some crag rats, and they began moving the bodies down uh, the mountain by litter, arriving at Jefferson Park late that evening. And there they were met by a forest ranger with a team of pack horses who helped transport the bodies to the trailhead and then back to Portland. So this incident was a, it was a real shock to Oregon's tight-knit climbing community and the rescue community, uh, especially because the operation was for one of their own. Uh, however, one bright spot in the tragedy is that the incident became a catalyst, encouraging the various recreational groups to improve their process for conducting search and rescue. About a month after these dramatic events on Mount Jefferson, the Mazamas organized a gathering of leaders from several of these outdoor clubs, and their purpose was to discuss how to share the burden of rescue operations. And what came out of that meeting was something called the Central Rescue Committee. And this was really the first attempt to try to organize the various outdoor groups that have been informally performing search and rescue. And the intent was to improve burden sharing and alert procedures when rescues were needed. And it wasn't a big step, but it was an important evolution in the professionalization of Oregon search and rescue.
Yeah, well, I mean, in the way you describe it, it's uh, especially that mission. I it it sounds similar to the way you know I, I've covered a lot of search and rescue missions over the yeah. years. It sounds very similar to to what happens today, except that I mean, without communications in a place like the Mount Jefferson, I just can't imagine how much work it would be having runners to communicate and and setting up food and every. I mean, it's a significant thing now. I can't even imagine how it was back then so it, that, no, yeah, yeah yeah you can just imagine like sending these runners from jefferson park you know over to Brightbush <laughs> lake every time they had to exchange a message it's crazy going over that big ridge i mean that's like what is it six miles or something like that that they were having to run back and forth each way it's just it's insane to think about uh, but somehow they did it yeah yeah it's yeah it's just wild to think about that era before you know standard radio communications um yeah <laughs> uh you know is skiing become became more popular in oregon and you also mentioned you know skiing was Became popular in Oregon probably earlier than a lot of places. The opening of Timberline Lodge um, and even Hoodoo and Willamette Pass came pretty shortly thereafter. You describe a rash of accidents that came along with it, but no real mechanism for rescue in those early days. You had a funny line about how nobody in the Forest Service at Mount Hood knew how to ski, so they couldn't very well have a ski patrol. Um, so, yeah, how did, yeah. so how did those uh, patrols come together? Yeah, so it's um, that was something that was really interesting that I discovered, particularly about the 1930s. This this what I call the golden age is that uh, Oregon's early ski patrols really played an important part in search and rescue, particularly during the 1930s. Uh, the Bend Skyliners was one of the first ski clubs that also served as an informal backcountry search and rescue unit for Central Oregon. The Obsidians of Eugene. Also organized a ski patrol in 1938 that served as a backcountry rescue unit, and that patrol eventually split into two separate entities, the Willamette Pass Ski Patrol and the Santium Pass Ski Patrol. A similar unit was created in Crater Lake in 1939, just a few years after the park began year-round operations. So this was something that was kind of new at Crater Lake, and park officials were receiving all these calls, all these emergency calls for guests uh, who were getting into trouble recreating around the lake. But the Park Service wasn't staffed or equipped to perform those rescues, so the Crater Lake Ski Club became um, a volunteer patrol uh, to supplement the park staff and assist with those rescues. Uh, but of all of these patrols, um, of the early ski patrols, certainly the busiest by far was the one established on Mount Hood in 1938. And many of the early members of the Mount Hood Ski Patrol were also members of the Mazamas and the Wise Climbers. So they came into the job with a lot of rescue experience. And although the patrol was created to work at the ski area, they conducted lots of off-piece search and rescue around Mount Hood in the winter. So all of these pat ski patrols were really an important part of the Oregon search and rescue ecosystem during the pre-war era. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the war. I mean, you mentioned that World War II brought about the end of, you know, the golden age of volunteer SAR and the rise of a new era. So why did World War II have such a big impact on search and rescue? Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a paradox. Um, so during the war, the outdoor recreation was almost non-existent. And the reason for that is because a lot of young men left for military service. In fact, uh, by 1944, over 100 members of the Mazamas were serving in uniform. It's kind of amazing to think about. Uh, meanwhile, many of those who remained at home were busy with the, supporting the war effort in civil defense roles or working in wartime industries. So uh, people just didn't have time for a lot of outdoor recreations. Uh, consequently, there were very few SAR missions during the war. Nevertheless, uh, the war years brought about dramatic changes that would have really a profound impact on how Oregon SAR developed in the post-war era. Uh, this was the first time that the federal government really became involved in search and rescue. And these 
uh, efforts were primarily focused on rescuing airmen and sailors lost at sea. Uh, but to aid in that effort, the Pentagon created what was called the Air Sea Rescue Agency. And that group was responsible for developing doctrine and overseeing training and conducting research and development focused on search and rescue. Uh, so during the war, the Pentagon developed uh, many technologies that would really transform search and rescue after the war. And it's just like a laundry list of things that were invented during the war, like marker dye, pyrotechnic signals, cold weather exposure suits, uh, modernized life preservers, pneumatic rafts. Uh, chemical water filtration, desalinization units, survival rations, emergency medical kits. Uh, they began using aerial photography for search and rescue. So an enormous amount of important SAR technology came out of the war and was developed by the Pentagon. And even the very term search and rescue came out of the Pentagon. That And the acronym SAR came into usage at the very end of the war. And that was a, an acronym coined by the Pentagon. Another big thing that came out of the war was the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, that was a wartime creation, and the Oregon wing of the Civil Air Patrol was created in, in 1942, and by the end of the war, it had about 1,400 volunteers in Oregon. And nationwide, the Civil Air Patrol flew some 24,000 hours of search and rescue missions supporting military operations, and they're credited with saving hundreds of downed flyers. Uh, the Civil Air Patrol, of course, would play a vital role in Oregon search and rescue in the post-war era. But I think probably the most significant legacy of the war years was the invaluable experience gained by many of Oregon's veterans who came home and played an important role in revitalizing the state's volunteer SAR organizations and accelerating that process of professionalization that I talk about a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. um, many members of the Oregon's volunteer SAR organizations served with elite units like the 10th Mountain Division, and they brought those experiences and knowledge at home with them after the war. And that infusion of expertise really helped improve Oregon SAR capabilities in the post-war era, particularly the, uh, the mountain rescue teams. Yeah, well, one of the most interesting parts of World War II that you describe was how searching for submarines during the war led to the creation of a science of search theory. Uh, I, I found this really fascinating. Can you describe what they're what they're talking about and why that's so important? Yeah, it's, it's a, another fascinating uh, innovation from the war. So search theory, um, it really had a profound impact on how SAR was conducted after the war. But the concept was developed by this uh, brilliant French-born mathematician named Bernard Koopman, who worked for the U.S. Navy's anti-submarine warfare program. And uh, he his job was to help the Navy target enemy subs. So Koopman Koopman established the mathematical basis for analyzing encounters between sensors and moving and stationary objects. And although his work was uh, top secret, it was highly classified during the war. By the 1950s, it had been declassified, and his theories became the basis of Coast, Coast Guard's peacetime search and rescue doctrine. And then by the 1970s, the same theories would begin to begin to be used in land-based search planning. So it was just kind of an interesting, another interesting innovation of the war era that really had a big impact on search and rescue after the war. All right, we're going to take one more break to hear from our sponsors. But when we return, Glenn talks about one of the biggest political crises in Oregon state history, when a plane carrying Oregon's governor, Senate president, and secretary of state went down in the search to find them. He'll also detail the rise of modern search and rescue and the Kim family tragedy. So that's when we return. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to bring back their Volunteer Adventures Program for 2024 that will welcome groups from inside or outside Tillamook County 
to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing invasive brush or working on a hiking trail. The next would include something like a guided hike or kayak trip, the type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. All meals, lodging, and activities are included. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. If you want more information or to sign up early, search for Tillamook Coast Volunteer Adventures or email danhag at dan at tillamacoast.com. Once again, that email is dan at tillamacoast, all one word, dot com. Our third and final sponsor is the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department that invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the way that the Air Patrol, you know, you know, just the number of planes in the air would, you know, obviously have a big impact on search and rescue. It's much easier to search for people from the air uh, than on the ground. But it rose in prominence after what you'd have to call one of Oregon's biggest political crises and an accident I've never actually heard of before reading. I'm a little embarrassed to, to say that. But can you describe what happened uh, in that case and, and what the impact was on SAR? Yeah. Uh, and just to provide a little context. So after the war, there was this big explosion of civil av aviation in the United States. Uh, more Americans began flying their own small private planes. And inevitably, that led to a spike in accidents. So in response to that, in August 1949, the Oregon State Legislature announced a plan to create an Air SAR program with a headquarters in Salem that was supposed to synchronize the efforts of various search and rescue groups around the state. And as part of that program, the uh, Oregon wing of the Civil Air Patrol had around 120 volunteers pilots spread out around the state who were able to respond within hours of notification to look for missing aircraft. Less than two months after the legislature uh, announces this plan and rolls this thing out, a private plane carrying Oregon's top three officials went missing. And so on the plane was Governor Earl Snell, uh, the Oregon Secretary of State, and the President of the State Senate. So these three men departed Klamath Falls in stormy weather, and they were heading out to the Warner Valley for a hunting trip, uh, and their aircraft didn't arrive on time. Uh, so the state officials ordered a massive air search, and the operation was focused on a rural part of Lake County uh, after a ranch hand had reported hearing a low-flying airplane the night before. And with that tip, air searchers fanned out across the area, and they spotted the plane's wreckage the next day in a mountainous area around 20 miles outside of Bly. Um, but because of the remote location, it took another day for a ground team to reach the crash site the following morning. Unfortunately, all the, the pilot and all the passengers had died in the crash. So, th th I mean, this was kind of remarkable. I mean, uh, it's the 
state's top three political officials uh, all gone in a single crash. So the Oregon legislature quickly approved House Bill 139, which formally established that AirSAR program under the State Board of Aeronautics. So it was, a, again, a tragedy which spurred movement forward on institutionalizing and professionalizing uh, the state's um, SAR enterprise. Yeah, it's it's just, it was crazy to think about something like that happening today. I can't even imagine it, like losing well, I, the... And I don't think it could happen today because actually the legislature also passed a law which prohibited the state's top officials from all traveling together in an airplane. Oh, uh, so that only, I, I think it's actually against the law for, for all of them to get in an airplane <laughs> together. I believe that was also passed that fall after the incident. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, so by the, the 1960s and then we get into the 70s, um, you know, that's, that's when outdoor recreation really starts to grow. Um, you write that that led to some groups that has historically been involved with search and rescue to, to step back a little bit um, as SAR became more professionalized. So why did that need to happen and how did that start to show up? Yeah, so particularly in the 1960s, there was this enormous surge in outdoor recreation in Oregon. And so that, of course, brought about an increasing number of SAR calls. But it just wasn't the, just the number. At the same time, those SAR operations were becoming increasingly complex. Uh, many of the missions involved combined air and ground searches, uh, technical mountain rescues, swift water operations, and medical calls in remote locations. So by 1970, there were over 200 incidents a year involving lost or injured persons in the wilderness requiring a response by search and rescue volunteers. So with this increased demand, many of those recreational clubs that once performed SAR services decided that it was time to step back and let specialized volunteer organizations perform in that role. So that's when we see groups like the Mazamas, the Skyliners, and the Obsidians gradually getting out of the SAR business. And then we start to see the creation of dedicated county-level volunteer organizations. Around that same time, uh, Oregon Governor Tom McCall uh, took the issue up and promised to provide more resources and to improve state-level SAR coordination. Yeah, well, and one thing that you note, and this seems to be a trend that continues to this day, is that expanding professionalization and big changes in SAR typically came after these high-profile disasters. And again, like we mentioned earlier, uh, two different examples you cite include uh, the search for Ray Barbour in the in the Wallowa Mountains, and then the search for a downed aircraft of Phyllis and 15-year-old Carla. Both are pretty tragic events, but can you kind of describe those missions a little bit? Yeah, those are great examples of uh, times when bad outcomes ultimately led to positive changes, and they're both really kind of fascinating missions. The first one you mentioned was a guy named Roy Barber, who was a research chemist at Oregon State University, and he went missing on a hunting trip in the Wallawas in November 1965, and his disappearance led to one of Eastern Oregon's most extensive SAR operations up to that time. Unfortunately, the Union County Sheriff had very limited SAR resources and was mm -hmm. unable to mount an air search operation. A family, uh, uh, Roy's family and friends uh, were left having to raise donations to fund the search effort. And after much delay, the searchers eventually found his body several miles from a cliff band where he had likely fallen and, and walked until he died. Uh, but the entire operation was, was really poorly coordinated and it received a lot of criticism in the media. And the mission highlighted the significant disparity between SAR capabilities around the state. Some counties were very well resourced with highly trained volunteer groups. However, many of Oregon's rural counties struggled to fund their SAR operations when needed. So that disparity was one of the factors that was pushing Governor McCall to establish a new state-level SAR headquarters in the early 1970s to help local sheriffs uh, coordinate mutual assistance and request military National Guard support when needed. Um, the, other, the other mission that you mentioned um, 
it was the failed search for the Oyen family and their teenage daughter named Carla. And this occurred a few years later in March, 1967. And the family left uh, Beaverton Airport in a small Cessna and they were bound for San Francisco for a holiday. And there had been unsettled weather across the state in the previous days. And Carla's father, Alvin Sr., was flying the plane. Uh, he last made radio contact with controllers over Medford, but the plane never arrived in Oakland. So that began this massive search effort looking for the missing plane. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Alvin Sr.'s son uh, was also an experienced aviator, Alvin Jr. He was a Reed College graduate who had learned to fly in the Oregon National Guard before joining the Air Force. And after his active duty service, Alvin Jr. became a pilot with Delta Airlines, but he also continued serving as a rescue pilot with the 304th Rescue Squadron based in Portland. So for weeks after the plane went missing, the Oregon Air Guard and Civil Air Patrol crews conducted over 350 sorties, primarily focused on the area south of Medford. Alvin Jr. personally flew many of the missions searching for his family. Unfortunately, the plane had crashed much farther to uh, the south in California's Trinity Alps on a snow-covered mountain uh, above 5,000 5, feet. And at the time, there was uh, no requirement that small private aircraft carry emergency locator transmitters, uh, ELTs. Mm -hmm. So the family survived the crash, but was badly injured. After a few days of waiting for rescue, Alvin Sr. Uh, left the crash site to find help, but he never returned. His wife, Phyllis, and their 15-year-old daughter, Carla, stayed behind in the wrecked aircraft. Uh, after around two weeks, state officials uh, called off the search, um, but they did know at the time that Phyllis and Carla were still alive, and they would survive another 40 days waiting for rescue, somehow surviving on a little bit of food that they had on board. Uh, during this entire time, Carla kept a diary of the ordeal until the day that she and her mother died of exposure and uh, starvation. And Alvin Jr. kept searching this entire time over the summer uh, without ever spotting the aircraft. The crash site was eventually found by some hunters the following October, and they also found Carla's diary, which contained this final desperate plea for search and rescue teams that never came. But again, like a lot of these stories in the book, uh, the tragedy came uh, at a really important time as lawmakers in Washington, D.C. were debating a proposal that was going to mandate the use of ELTs in civilian aircraft. Uh, an excerpt from Carla's diary was actually read on the Senate floor as the bill was being debated. Uh, the crash site ended up only being eight miles from California State Route 299, so it would have been very quickly located if the plane had been carrying an ELT. Uh, fortunately, the bill mandating the use of those in civilian aircraft was signed a few years later, making it easier for SAR teams to locate down aircraft. Uh, so, um, you know, it's just an interesting story. And for those interested in learning more about that, a uh, guy named Ross Nixon, uh, who helped me out with this section, wrote an excellent book about the incident called uh, Finding Carla. And so I highly recommend mm -hmm. that book. But just another example of how these tragedies really are the thing, the catalyst that brings about um, positive movement forward in a lot of cases. Yeah, the one uh, about Carla was definitely like like it, it hit you as you were reading it, especially reading her her journal, uh, her journal entries. You know, yeah, her family uh, provided me with some photocopies of of her journal, and they allowed me to use them in the book. I was very grateful for that, and it's just seeing her her handwriting, her writing those final messages before she died. It's just unbelievable to think about. Yeah. Well, by the 1970s, SAR started to be housed uh, with the sheriff's offices of each county in Oregon. And by 1975, every county in Oregon, in Oregon was mandated to have a SAR team. Um, was this kind of the beginning of the model that we have today? Is this kind of would, is this is this sort of the modern era beginning to, to blossom? 
Very, very much so. Yeah, the early 1970s, again, we see a big spike in SAR mission numbers. It's increasing by about 25% a year during the early 1970s. So by 1975, the state reported a record number of 412 missions. The following year, that jumped over to 550. So by the mid-1970s, there's just this big spike in demand for SAR services. So the state legislature acts and they pass uh, Senate Bill 996, which formally recognizes the authority of county sheriffs over Oregon's SAR operations. And that new law stipulated that each Oregon County Sheriff was responsible for SAR activities within their jurisdiction, and it's outlined some specific functions to be performed by the state SAR coordinator and tasked uh, the Emergency Services Division with coordinating state and federal resources for ground search and rescue. So in some sense, this kind of clarified what had already been the informal practice for several decades uh, in terms of, you know, sheriffs taking responsibility for this. But what it did do is it accelerated the process of professionalization. And Mm -hmm. we especially see this as the Oregon State Sheriff's Association started establishing baseline training requirements for SAR volunteers. And this helped ensure a greater degree of uniformity in how SAR operations were conducted around the state. However, it didn't address the issue of funding, especially for those cash-strapped rural counties. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think that issue has been solved yet. Uh, I mean, I've, yeah, I agree. I've, yeah. I've, I've heard about that issue. You know, it's it, finding ways to to fund all the search and rescue operations that are mandated, uh, but not necessarily funded. Uh, it, I mean, that's that's remained a thing that that I've reported on. Um, but uh, you know, I, I want to jump back here, and I hate to keep going over these kind of you know tragic moments. But again, as we talked about at the beginning, they they do serve as catalysts for change. The Oregon Episcopal School disaster uh, was a landmark moment, uh, the second deadliest alpine accident in North America, another really tragic one. Can you talk about that incident and also like the evolution of mountain rescue? Yeah. So, um, you know, Mount, Mountain Rescue, it did, it did I, I cover that extensively in the book, and it's really a fascinating story because, uh, you know, the state, obviously Oregon has a very rich climbing history. So it's no surprise that Oregon developed some of the best mountain rescue units in the country at, a, at pretty early on. And this process really accelerated into the post-war era. Uh, the, the origin story of Oregon's mountain rescue enterprise was yet another example of a tragedy bringing about changes for search and rescue. And that actually came out of a 1954, very highly publicized recovery of a young Portland climber named William Morley, who died on Mount Jefferson. Uh, it was a very difficult operation in which the Crag Rats volunteered to go and recover Morley's body. But that tragedy spurred uh, Oregon's various mountain rescue units to come together to form a collective organization called the Mountain Rescue and Safety Council of Oregon, or Moresco. And the purpose was to improve training and coordination among the various groups performing mountain rescue around the state. And that was the precursor entity to the Mountain Rescue Association, which formed at Timberline Lodge a few years later. And many Oregon SAR volunteers have held important leadership roles within that organization over the years. Um, but you mentioned the Oregon Episcopal, Episcopal School disaster. So I think many Oregon, Oregonians will probably recall the details of this tragedy on Mount Hood in 1986. Um, and as you mentioned, the second deadliest alpine accident in North American history. So it involved a party of 20 climbers, including 15 students from uh, Oregon Episcopal School in Portland, who were climbing Mount Hood as part of an outdoor recreation program for the school. Um, Without recounting the entire background of the incident, the group encountered bad weather and lost sight of their route as they climbed above Palmer Lift. And in the storm, they couldn't see Timberline Lodge and veered off course towards White River Canyon. And as the situation became desperate, the party leaders dug a snow cave that was large enough to shelter most, but not all of the remaining 13 climbers who were still with the main group. 
Uh, when they didn't return that night as planned, call went out to Portland Mountain Rescue and the 304th Rescue Squadron, who began searching early the next morning. Uh, the rescuers faced really difficult weather conditions during the search. Uh, by Wednesday, there were over 150 SAR personnel operating in 15 teams around the mountain. And later that day, one of the teams spotted two bodies in the snow just over the west ridge of White River Canyon, and the third uh, victim was later found nearby. And that discovery helped refine the search effort. The next day, the searchers discovered a snow cave after uh, combing the slope with avalanche probes. And tragically, only two of the 11 climbers were still alive. But um, by all accounts, the SAR teams did really exceptional work on this mission under extremely challenging conditions. The, there was an after-action review of the incident. Um, by the Clackamas County Sheriff, and they identified a few small areas uh, for improvement, but none of those recommended changes would have altered the outcome. It was, mm-hmm. um, you know, just something that probably couldn't have been um, couldn't have been changed by the SAR teams. However, the pre- the tragedy did spur a heated debate about requiring climbers to carry emergency beacons on Mount Hood to aid in search and rescue, and I cover some of the details about the beacon debate in the book as well. Yeah, I'm I'm just curious out of like in doing this research and uh, all the stuff that you do and you're you're obviously an active outdoors guy. You know, as a reporter, like when I'm writing about tragedy all the time, it definitely like changes the way that I think about going outdoors and like some of the things that I think about in advance. I'm curious if you had a similar experience in doing this research and just being like, "Okay, I'm getting ready to go on this trip. I'm darn sure going to make sure to check everything off my list." Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, I always encourage other people to do the same and I've just become way more conservative, um, as I, you know, go out on long trips and I do a lot of solo, um, hiking in the fall as well. And especially when I'm out by myself, I'm, I'm really cautious and cognizant of these things. Um, there's, isn't a lot of room for error when you're, when you're out, when you don't have cell phone coverage and you're by yourself. So yeah, definitely it's changed the way I think about going out and recreating myself. Well, I wanted to, to talk about this. We, you know, I mentioned it before, but, Modern search and rescue, um, you know, we've, we've kind of covered how we got there, but the, the funding aspect still seems to be a sticking point. Like, did you talk to, you know, modern search and rescue guys, especially in more rural parts of the state about that challenge of, again, funding this thing can, that can be very expensive, you know, the equipment that's required, um, even with volunteers, um, but not getting the funding. Like, do you know, where, where do you think that debate stands? Yeah, it's like you said, it, it hasn't been resolved. And it's been a reoccurring issue going back in my research, you know, in the 1930s, they're talking about the need to raise money and just the difficulty of that. Um, so it continues to be a concern in the post-war era, even after the county sheriffs assume, assume responsibility. Uh, I think things have gotten better over time, but it still remains a challenge, particularly for the rural counties. And But it's not just an issue in Oregon. Uh, SAR mission numbers have been re- rising uh, for many years across the country, and the funding hasn't always kept pace with the demand for SAR services. And I think it continues to present uh, a a challenge. Um, You know, in Oregon and elsewhere, volunteers perform most of the SAR operations at the county level. Um, They are volunteers, but they still need training. They still need equipment, and that ultimately takes money. You know, I'm fortunate to be in Deschutes County, where we have a pretty well-resourced and well-funded search and rescue organization, but that's certainly not the case in every county across Oregon. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask you about just two more things. Um, the first one is it just has to be the the Kim family thing because that you know that reached uh, a national level as far as the search for it, as far as the aftermath. Um, for people that weren't around then, um, do you mind just quickly reminding us what what happened in that case? Yeah, and that um, like you said, that 
incident really put the spotlight on Oregon Search and Rescue. So the Kim family tragedy, uh, James Kim was a well-known technology reporter who was traveling through Oregon over Thanksgiving holiday in 2006. And he was with his wife, Katie, who was a University of Oregon graduate and their two young children. Uh, the family was reported missing after leaving Portland and failing to arrive at their hotel in Gold Beach. And unbeknownst to the searchers, the family had missed their exit for Oregon Route 42 off Interstate 5. And instead, they took Bear Camp Road. And that event- eventually, they became stuck in the snow on a BLM logging road in a remote part of the Siskiyou National, National Forest along the Curry and Josephine County lines. Uh, so that kicked off a huge search effort involving Oregon State Police, local law enforcement, air search assets, uh, SAR teams from five different counties. Uh, unfortunately, the search was plagued by some confusion and poor coordination. And uh, 10 days after the family was reported missing, a helicopter pilot who wasn't even part of the formal search effort spotted Katie Kim and her two daughters walking on a road near their car. Two days later, the body of James Kim was found in Big Windy uh, Creek Canyon, about 16 miles from the car. At some point, he had left the car looking for help and died of hypothermia. So in the aftermath of the search, there were a lot of accusations about mismanagement and calls for investigation. But uh, it's, it, what people may not remember, it, was, it wasn't just that mission drawing attention to Oregon SAR that fall. There were two other missions that occurred around the same time that were also in the headlines. Uh, just the month before in October, there was a really high profile search for an eight-year-old year old boy who went missing at Crater Lake National Park. Because that search was conducted inside the park, it led to, uh, they brought in an outside team of crisis management experts from the Park Service. Uh, sadly, the boys uh, boy was never found, but the operation was viewed as very well managed, and the team used the incident command system, which was a standardized approach uh, to incident management used by federal, state, and local agencies. Um, and although there was an unsatisfying outcome, it was reportedly a very well-run operation. And then just a few days after James Kim was found, there was another major SAR operation on Mount Hood involving three climbers who were reported missing while attempting to climb uh, uh, on a route on the North Slope. And that search turned into another major operation involving all of the Oregon's uh, mountain rescue units. And eight days after that, the body of one climber was discovered in a snow cave below the summit. After 11 days, the authorities had to end the search for the two other men. Um, the following summer, over 100 volunteers went out uh, looking for the bodies, but the remains were never found. So over the course of a few months, we had these three really high-profile SAR missions around the state. Uh, None of them had a particularly happy ending, but perhaps more importantly, uh, each one of them had been run very differently. So it sort of demonstrated the fact that SAR operations were not following a standardized methodology around the state. And the Kim family search also had exposed challenges with command and control and operational coordination among the counties. So in the aftermath of these events, Oregon Governor Kulongoski signed an executive order that created a state SAR task force to study Oregon's search and rescue system. And the group met for several weeks to study the state SAR command and control issues, communications, training, and resources. And the task force submitted its final report to the governor a few months later. And one of the major recommendations was for SAR organizations, uh, SAR coordinators to adopt the incident command system to improve SAR operations. And the task force also recommended funding, increased funding for SAR training and other technologies to improve SAR capabilities. Abilities. But what was really important to note and interesting about the, the task force's report was that 
the, the task force didn't attempt a major overhaul of the entire SAR system because they found that it had actually been serving Oregon quite well, despite the recent setbacks. They wanted to refine some aspects of the system and improve some capabilities. But overall, the state's volunteer SAR entities were viewed as be being well-trained and capable. Unfortunately, a few high-profile incidents had obscured the hundreds of other SAR missions that ended successfully that year. And most of those incidents never even made it into the newspaper. Yeah, well, I mean, that goes back to just, you know, all the, the failures become public and the su successes are maybe they might be celebrated with like a little brief in the newspaper, but they don't, you know, they don't make front page news because, you know, it's, it, you know, it's just kind of the nature of of, of news, um, you know, the, the more disastrous stuff gets front and center. But, you know, it's interesting that I, that I was started my career down in Southern Oregon as a reporter uh, just after the Kim family tragedy and got to know a number of those search and rescue people who were on that uh, pretty well. And a lot of them were, you said, you know, we worked really hard. Mm -hmm. There was just a few gap. There was some gaps in communication and in some ways, you know, they didn't, they weren't grateful that it happened. Certainly they wish it had a better outcome, but they did say that, that incident really spurred a much more cohesive system down there on the border in Southern Oregon and Northern California yes. yeah. um, that they said, you know, it, that it, it was night and day, you know, before and after the mission. And they were just much more coherent involved after the fact. So I don't know. It, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, I guess sometimes it takes those, those cases to move it forward. Do you know the, uh, the, success rate because it's really high for for finding people isn't do you do you know that offhand uh yeah you know it's it is it is very high you'd have to probably talk to scott lucas uh at the state mm -hmm. SAR coordinator to get the exact numbers but it's um yeah the success rate is very high so you know there haven't there really haven't been a lot of high profile disasters recently and but what's amazing is, is at the same time SAR mission numbers have been a record levels in recent years and Oregon SAR teams are busier than ever, but you know, a lot of that work goes unnoticed. And, um, but I think because the vast majority of the missions do result in successful outcomes, but at, but as you know, as a reporter, it's those, it's the rare unsuccessful outcomes that tend to make it into the news. Um, while I think Oregon search and rescue still has some challenges, particularly in terms of funding, I think the overall record of success really speaks to the hard work and professionalization of the state's dedicated SAR volunteers. And, you know, I hope, uh, more than anything, what this book offers readers is an appreciation of the state's amazing tradition of volunteer search and rescue and everything that the volunteers do to keep their fellow Oregonians safe in the outdoors. Yeah, it almost feels like in reading the book, it's you, it's almost a process of reading how uh, it's been refined and refined and refined again through, you know, the series of ups and downs and tragedies and and improvements, you know, to reach the point that we're at today. Yeah, it's, it's really a remarkable history, and uh, I, had a, I had a great time doing the research. All right. Well, once again, I've been joined by Glenn Voltz. He's a professional ski patroller and the author of the recent book, Oregon Search and Rescue, Answering the Call. Glenn, thanks so much for taking some time. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Zach. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. 
for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.